This is episode 147 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Michelle Bruno. She graduated from Misericordia University Speech-Language Pathology Program in 2014. She's been an SLP in the Philadelphia and New Jersey region, ranging from SNFs, short-term rehab, and behavioral health hospital settings. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Thank you for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right. Who are you? Tell the people who you are. (laughs) My name is Michelle. I'm I'm an SLP in South Jersey. I've been practicing for about six years, mostly in SNFs, SNFs with either a heavy psych population or also in psych facilities. Um, right now I work in a SNF that is attached to a psych hospital. Yeah. Awesome. Interesting. All right. What are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about speech therapy with the psych population, either in a different facility and you just have a patient who also has psych diagnoses or in a psych facility. Yeah. Which I feel like is such, yeah, such an under, underserved, even under acknowledged population that we work with. So, yeah, I definitely learned by just being thrown into it. (laughs) Yeah. So this is kind of what I've kind of gathered over the past five or so years working with this population and just a little bit of guidance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's probably not much out there, I'm guessing. No, it's all trial by error. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. All right. So where do you want to start? Um, So I just want to start by saying that the speech therapy interventions and evaluations are all the same. Yeah. Um, We're still providing the same therapy and using the same practices, it's just navigating through the psych stuff and either the barriers in a psych facility or the specifics there that might be different. But once you get through all of that, the therapy is all the same. It's just, again, how you, how you present it or how you go about getting there might be different. All right. So some specifics, if you are in a psych facility that I didn't realize until I was there, (laughs) Just some things that you might have to work around. A lot of times psych facilities will be centered around group therapy, whether it be talk therapy, music therapy, some type of group therapy. And then there's usually a reward if everybody attends. So it's helpful to know what time those are so you can plan your therapy around it. The facility that I'm at is usually great. If I get my timing wrong, they will still offer to pull the, the person out of group therapy. But just knowing that then it will usually result in a consequence for everybody because then not everybody will be in attendance. Okay. Or if your facility has court dates, court time, smoke breaks, all of that, all of those will be something to consider and manage where you, how you fit in your therapy to hopefully either not interrupt the other things that are going on. Hopefully you will have some behavioral support to use, whether it's a tech or somebody who is assigned maybe a one-to-one to to specific patients that way they're they're your go-to, right? You start off by talking with them, maybe doing some chart review or consulting with the nurse to figure out what's going on. 
but hopefully you will have that support there. That way you're not going in solo or at least someone else can help you if needed. Maybe they're not right there, but maybe they're just one room over or in the hallway or something. Another thing to consider is whether or not the person is in the psych facility voluntarily or involuntarily, whether it's court ordered, because that'll usually tell you without even working with the patient, how cooperative they will be. Obviously not always, but if the person is there involuntarily, they might not be the most cooperative. Just something to consider. Um, Something that was new to me too is the system of double doors. So the facility that I'm in now, each wing has two doors to get through, but you always have to make sure that the inner door is closed before opening the outer door. So that was, again, something that I learned on site, but just a background that's helpful. So that's obviously specifics in a psych facility. Those might not be appropriate if you're in a SNF or some other, other facility that is just working with the psych population as a whole. But yeah, awesome. Those are specifics for a psych facility. Some things I like to keep in mind during my chart review. I always try and do a chart review before seeing the person. I like to just scan for any recent chemical restraints, physical restraints used. It is pretty jarring to see physical restraints put into place or to see somebody brought into a quiet room, which is essentially a room with a chair that has all sorts of restraints on it. But just being aware if either of those were implemented is helpful to know bigger picture and what what the person might present like. And usually any kind of successful redirection would be written down. Hopefully the nurse would say what kind of redirection is beneficial. If you see something like internal stimuli, that's something that I recently learned that the person is pretty much talking to themselves. They have some sort of internal stimuli and sometimes they're hard to redirect. They might be secluded, you know, things like that, where they're just, they're responding to the internal stimuli that they have. That's, I see that written a lot. I also try and look for if there's any sign of obviously what the diagnosis is, why they're there, but any kind of note as to physical physical presentations that will help me be aware of if there's an active episode. So side story, I had a person who had multiple personality disorders and I didn't know that her sign or her, you know, how I could tell was if she wore a wig or not. When she wore a wig, she was presented as somebody else. And when she didn't have the wig on, she knew all of her strategies. She knew why I was there. She could tell me what happened in her recent video swallow study. But with the wig on, she was a different person. So I had to start all over from scratch with her when she presented that way. Interesting. (laughs) But the takeaway from that is I try and read through and maybe figure out if there's a sign that I could look for. Are they, you know, walking a certain way? Is their body position a certain way? Are they singing something? You know, what's the sign that I can look for to know whether or not it's okay to try and see them? Something for us to consider by going into these spaces where somebody's mental health might be very fragile is to consider how we present. So consider all of the senses, you know, smell, touch, taste, sight, and sound, and and think of how we're presenting not usually appropriate for us to go into these spaces all loud and boisterous and happy. Whereas usually that might be how we present to our patients, right? We want to be happy and and present very friendly 
but it's all patient specific and that might set somebody off in these settings. I also look for any kind of note of tremors, tardive dyskinesia, and then I usually bring along AIMS, which is the abnormal involuntary movement scale that helps to categorize exactly what's going on. It breaks down its five different categories and it breaks down facial oral movements, extremity movements, trunk movements, global judgment, and dental status. And that just helps to categorize other than just saying they have tardive dyskinesia, but really what's going on. So I find that helpful. Something else too to consider is it's not always appropriate for us to treat when somebody is in an acute psych episode. And often we'll get referrals or there's other things going on that maybe it's most appropriate if we defer. So there are a couple scenarios that I find kind of repeat themselves where I find it's most appropriate to defer, at least for the time being. So those are, first and foremost, can the person participate? That might seem obvious, but I do often get referrals that say so-and-so is not eating. But when I dig into it, it's because every night they have a behavioral episode. So they get an injection around 6 a.m. Of course, they're not going to be eating breakfast. So like, look at the bigger picture there. Or if there's a food avoidance because of a delusion. I had a patient tell me recently that they're not eating because they are dead. Okay. Not much I can do there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So just certain scenarios where it's most appropriate to defer. A lot of times with this population, they might have different utensils in place, plastic utensils, or they might not be given knives. And sometimes we'll get the referral because they can't cut their food and they want an altered texture in place. If it's not because of a swallowing issue, might not be appropriate for us to address it. Again, it is definitely appropriate for us to work with these patients. It's just a matter of when and making sure that they can participate. So let me let me ask you, Michelle, because one of the things that I find really fascinating is is the whole is the whole concept of like the medications. Like, because I know sometimes, you know, medications are used for one thing, but they can cause things, but then sometimes they can be a symptom, but they can also be a cause of something. And I guess kind of how much do you take into consideration all the meds that these patients are on? Yeah. So I like to kind of scan for, you know, if they have a long-term history of psych disorders, usually they have long-term use of psych meds. And if I'm working with a geriatric patient, that may cause, we know it can lead to tardive dyskinesia and other issues like that. Sometimes I will dive a little bit deeper into the medication and try and have a conversation with the physician. That's more so in the SNF setting, though. The psych population, the psych hospital that I'm at, that I'm at right now is short-term. Okay. So in order to have medical intervention and to change the path of the medication, it would be long-term and we usually don't have that follow-through. Usually our patients are gone in two weeks, if that. So the medication is usually, again, long-term use to have the side effects. And it's definitely helpful to know what those side effects are and to dive kind of more into, well, if they have this disease and this medication is used, this could be the outcome. But on the again, on the short-term, I don't really the doctors there are really treating the acute deficit. 
unfortunately, and they're not looking at the bigger picture and they're not trying to fix the system, so to speak, which is unfortunate. And I wish they would. But on the long-term side, that's where I address it. If I have a patient who, you know, is on a medication that I know might lead to issues in our realm, then I'll have the conversation. It's just a little bit more well-received. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to the point where I have that rapport on the short-term side where I can say, no, let's change this med and then have the patient go on in a week and have it be supported, you know? Okay. Well, um, are there specific meds that, that you find that your patients are on that are causing more swallowing issues than others or? Off the top of my head, um, it's more so the restraints. So the chemical okay. restraints that are causing patients to then be uh, catatonic, which obviously they're going to have trouble with alertness, trouble with swallowing, obviously at those points. But I also try and look for it. Surprisingly, some of my patients are still getting lithium. And again, you know, I might not be addressing that with the doctor directly, but it's still helpful to know that long-term use of lithium has some pretty gnarly side effects and to just be aware of those. <laughs> yeah. 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 What else? So again, you might not always be in a psych facility that has the behavioral support. I know I started off in a SNF that just had a heavy psych population without the behavioral support. So just some things that I have tried to implement for my own safety or in case for whatever, for whatever reason on this, in the psych facility, those that staff is busy doing something else, just some behavioral management and redirection techniques that I've found to be helpful. (sighs) Being aware of where I present myself with the person and my surroundings. So if I go to see somebody and they're in a common area or a room with other patients, and I may know that my patient is stable, but I don't know everybody else's background or what's going on with them. So I will either try to see them one-on-one in a separate quiet space that's a little bit safer or position myself to where if something goes on in that room, I can get out of that room. If the person is in their room, and again, knowing that I have a rapport with my patient, I know it's okay for me to go see that person. I will still try and let somebody, a staff member in the facility know, hey, she's in with X, Y, and Z, either the nurse there somebody in my rehab department to just know that's where I am. And a couple of things too, that I try and keep in mind. I don't wear a lanyard with my name tag around my neck. I clip it to my shirt, things like that too, that just kind of help. I almost never bring a clipboard Well, now with COVID and restrictions what you can bring. But yeah. even before all that, I, I don't bring a lot of materials, if any, aside from just what I have to write down and a piece of paper. But I really try and limit the materials that I bring. I don't want to forget something and leave it there and have it be used as a weapon or anything like that. But I also just want to not be distracted when I'm there. Something too to consider, uh, this might seem obvious, but it really took me a while to get used to it. But when you go to work with one of these patients or in a facility, read the room. (laughs) You might really do your chart review really be prepared and feel ready. And then you go there and there's a code or go there and there's something going on and it's not the time. So you just have to come back when it is the time or maybe another day. Usually if you're in a behavioral health setting, they will have their own de-escalation techniques. 
and the staff that is meant to enforce those will be trained in those. Usually that's not therapy because at least in my experience, they don't want us intervening in that time. And we don't really need to. Our, our job is to get out usually if, if something's going on. So it talked to me, Michelle, a little bit kind of about like, like your day to day there. Like, okay. is it, you know, do you do a lot of diet modification, thick and liquids? Is it a place that you can do, you know, exercises, things like that? Like, I'm curious to know kind of just, yeah, what your, like what your sessions might look like. Sure. Um, so it depends. I try to stay away from thick and liquids unless they've had a recent video swallow study that showed it was needed or unless we can get them one because I know follow through is not follow through with speech therapy, at least is not always at the top of their list in terms of what to do. So I really don't want to set somebody up for long-term dehydration. But usually when I get a referral for that facility, I'll start with a chart review, try and get some background information, touch base with the nurse or the dietitian to see what's going on and to figure out why it was referred. Almost always it's because of a, a concern for diet texture. I'll try and rule out fairly quickly if I think it's behavioral or if it's truly a swallowing disorder. So I'll look either at what I'm being told or and or the chart to see if they have a history of cancer oral pharyngeal cancer, any esophageal stuff going on, long-term alcohol abuse that could lead to esophageal issues, you know, just really try and get the history. And then hopefully the person is participatory and maybe they can give me some history. Sometimes they can tell me what's been going on. You know, they might say they had their throat stretched three years ago or, or something like that. And that'll kind of give me a little bit further as to what's going on. So then I'll address either if it is appropriate to do exercises, I will. If it's, you know, they told me they had their throat stretched three years ago. They always eat softer food at home. They don't eat hard food like this. They just need it to be softer so it can go down okay. Then I'll recommend a diet change and then follow up with GI if it's a GI issue. And then I won't continue to see them if it's not something that we can readily improve or really address during the short window we have there. Sometimes if the, you know, clinical case is there, I'm trying to think of an example recently that had us using exercises, but most recently we've either deferred to GI or deferred to a recent video swallow study to kind of get the bigger picture because we don't always have it when we start. Cool. Let me, you know, kind of ask what you know, so you say you try to bring like the minimum that you can possible into the room with them. And you said that doing your job, you really try to make it, you know, just as normal as possible, still getting modified fees, things like that. Are you able to, are you able to get those procedures done? Okay. Are you able to use, you know, I think of things like biofeedback or EMST or like, do you, do you have access to those kind of tools to use on these patients? Unfortunately, not biofeedback or EMST, but we do have access to video swallow studies. We don't do them there, but we refer out. And sometimes depending on the issue, we do, for a while, we were getting a lot of patients who were swallowing things that were not food. So either they would come in with full GI workup, full video swallow study report, or they would get sent out and then get it done. 
So usually I have that to go from. I don't always have it to go from. I recently had a case where I was dumbfounded that they didn't do a video swab study. It was a gunshot wound to the face and throat and there was no video swallow study done and he had multiple reconstructions and was eating oh goodness so oh goodness luckily again I was very dumbfounded that he didn't get one done but we were quickly able to get that for him and and then based based our recommendations off of those results so I like I said we don't have access to biofeedback over there but I do still try and give them an image of what's going on. So I'll print out, you know, a cutout of looking into somebody's mouth and throat and show them, you know, this, these are the muscles we're working on. This is why I'm asking you to do effortful swallows. This is why we're following the progression through if I'm doing MDTP with somebody, this is what we're addressing. This is what we're targeting. And I'll try and relay it to really put it in their words. If they they might know, hey, it feels like something's stuck in my throat or I always have to clear my throat or whatever they're saying clinically. I'll say, hey, you know how it feels like something's stuck in your throat or, you know, after you drink, you always kind of sound gurgly that this is why we're doing that, you know, and just really make it something that they can hopefully see as to what I'm talking about <laughs> and why I'm trying to get them to swallow nothing or whatever the case may be. Awesome. Well, sounds interesting, Michelle. It is very interesting. (laughs) Is this a population that you've always, you wanted to work in or you just kind of stumbled upon it or? I just kind of stumbled upon it. The buildings that I were, that I was assigned to a couple years ago really had a heavy, heavy behavioral health population without it actually being a behavioral health facility. So that's kind of where I dipped my toe into this population and really found that there wasn't much guidance onto, you know, our role. You know, Asha says, yes, we can serve this population, but it doesn't really, at least I haven't found many resources that say how or what is our role? What do we do? Yeah. And we could also potentially be working on other areas, not just swallowing issues, but you know, sometimes there's a lot of dysarthria, depending on what's going on structurally, you know, long term use of certain drugs can lead to teeth erosion or or certain muscles not really moving properly. So it's not always swallowing. Just again, in the acute setting, I haven't really found it too appropriate to address cognitive communication disorders. Because when there's, you know, grandiose delusions going on, that takes precedence. Right. When when there's an acute psych episode, treating that first before treating the communication or the cognitive communication deficit or cognitive deficit, they're kind of two separate pieces and they are often intertwined, but the psych disorder, the active episode needs to be addressed first before we can truly assess our piece to it. So that's why I think over in my current facility on the psych side, usually it's just swallowing that we see because the acute psych disorder takes precedence to addressing the other areas that we would usually treat as well. Yeah. If that makes sense. So it sounds like a much more holistic approach. I try to. Yeah. Because you know, if I have a patient telling me he's wearing the president's pants, yeah. we're not going to yeah. be working on orientation too well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. It, what else would you like to tell, you know, if, if people are thinking this is a population that they find fascinating, what else would you like to share with them? 
I think it's really rewarding. It's often a population that is underserved and usually looked over, unfortunately, in our health care world. So if you take the time to navigate all of this <laughs> and then you can really help a person improve, it really means the difference to them and it really helps you to get that fulfillment by helping people improve some way. Or unfortunately, sometimes you can't help somebody improve, but you help them understand what's going on, right? If you have limited resources, you can't always make improvements, but you can at least guide somebody to, hey, this is what's going on. This is who you should follow up with or whatever the case may be. So I'd encourage you to continue or check it out. Or if you have any interest in this population, definitely reach out if you need support or find a facility that has the support on site because that really made a difference between working in a facility and a SNF that had the heavy psych population, but no behavioral support to working in a facility that does have the behavioral support that that safety piece really makes a difference with how secure I feel. Well, thank you so much, my dear. Of course. Thank you. Any final thoughts? Mm, I'm sure as soon as we're done, I'm going to think of like 20 more things to say. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.